So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the name of the Lord from glory, God's only son, earth's only savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great privilege for me to worship him with you in this place on this day in the middle of the Memphis summer. Also bring you greetings from the two churches that I go to. I um, go in the morning to a church where I'm a member called International Christian Fellowship. That's an English church which provides headphones for Russian speakers. And um, in the afternoon, I go to a church I helped to start in 1992 called Moscow Bible Church. And I'm glad that they meet at different times so that I can go to both churches. And I bring you greetings from both churches. Neither church has a building. Neither church has a senior pastor. So we greet you in your fullness and we ask you to pray for us in our weakness. I'd even ask you to pray about spending a little time there. Maybe three months, maybe six months, maybe nine months, maybe a year. I would never care to put a limit on what God might call you to do. I used to have a professor, an amazing teacher called Howard Hendricks. We would always want to know, well, how long should the paper be? He would never tell us. He'd say, I'm not going to put a limit on what you might do for God. That was a dirty trick, but uh, he, had a, he had a wonderful point. So anyway, Moscow is not an easy place to live, but it's a lot easier than it used to be, and it's probably easier than you think. And who wants easy anyway? It's a very consequential place. Uh, it's an important place. Okay. I'm going to read from verse 9 to verse 18 of John 1. This is our second of three messages from John chapter 1, if the Lord grants us another Lord's Day. Last time we did the first five verses. It's a very profound section of the Word of God. We just kind of hit the themes of glancing below and kept moving. That's all we're going to do today. We're skipping verses 6 through 8 because if we had 30 Sundays together, maybe we could do justice to John 1, but we only have three. So we're skipping a lot of stuff. Today we're going to talk about the Word, the Logos, another name for Jesus, in the world. Last week we talked about the Logos before the world. The materialist worldview tells us that mind somehow developed, bubbling up from below randomly and accidentally. That material came first and then accidentally came mind and one of the mythologies of the mind is a, is a creator God. That's the secular worldview. Scripture, of course, teaches the opposite. Scripture teaches that first there was a mind. First there was a, a, a logos. First there was a wisdom and foresight and intentionality and uh, a plan. The secularist says that the picture came first and later we provided the caption. Well, the secularist is also trying to provide a caption and it's false. Scripture says that the caption came first, that meaning is antecedent. It precedes. It's not subsequent, something that comes later. Uh, the Scripture teaches that meaning is something that's derived from above. It's not something that develops from below. And we talked a little while about the two worldviews. We talked about the fact that 
if we try to impute to descriptive words um, the quality of explanation, in other words, if we, if we use a descriptive term and say it's explanatory, then when we do that, we begin to believe in magic. And we deploy magic words instead of true explanation. For instance, cosmologists cannot say how anything got here. But they glibly say, well, it was the Big Bang. That's not an explanation. That's a magic formula if you use it to evict God from the equation. So we talked about that last week. Now we're going to talk about the word entering in the world, the word, the word in the world, the Logos coming into his creation, the author appearing in the novel, the playwright entering the drama. If you could imagine such a thing, if Bach or Beethoven could actually become the music, that's what happened when Jesus entered this planet. He didn't become a creature, although he's the firstborn of all creation. He became the head of creation, but he didn't become a creature. He became a human being, but he didn't become a creature. The first Adam was created, but not born. The second Adam was born, but not created. He always existed. We pick it up there in verse nine. In honor of God and his word, let's just stand up another minute, shall we? John 1, verse 9. Hear the word of God. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. It's enough to make us weep. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right. The Greek word is exousia. He gave the authority to become the the technetheo, the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. Verse 9 and verse 14 is all we get of Christmas from John. Luke and Matthew give us the historical narrative. John gives us the the theological reality. Here is John's Christmas verse. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. The Greek actually says begotten. Glory is the only begotten from the father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he existed before I did. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then an amazing verse that we're going to have to talk about. No one has seen God at any time. Wow. No one has seen God at any time. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Heavenly Father, show us what it means, show us why it matters, and change us thereby to be less like ourselves and more like your Son. For we ask it in your Son's name, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. 
the word was coming into the world, we're told. Again, that in verse 14 is all John tells us about the appearance of Christ on this planet. Matthew tells us about the Magi and the flight to Egypt. Luke tells us about the manger and the angels. Matthew and Luke, as we said, present the thing in narrative form historically. John presents the thing in doctrinal form theologically. And then we see in verses 10 and 11 the great tragedy. The creator is unrecognized. The redeemer is unreceived. The scripture says that he was in the world and the world was made through him. He was the creator, but the the creatures didn't know him. He came to his own, to his own people, the Jews. He was their Messiah, but they didn't receive him. You know, we talk about apologetics, and, and apologetics is a defense of the faith. Well, you know, other religions have their apologists. Did you know that? There was a man named Ahmed Didat. He's in hell now. He was the great, he was the Robbie Zacharias, C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell of Islam. He was a South African Muslim. And he would attack the Christian faith, and he was formidable. He was a tremendous debater. One of the ways that the Christian faith is attacked is this way. How could the chosen people not choose God? What sense does that make? So you're telling me that God chose the Jews and the Jews rejected Jesus, and this is the, this is the narrative of, of Christianity? You expect me to believe that? I remember being challenged by the most well-read person I've ever met in my life, and she was a university under, undergraduate in Israel, a Jewish girl from Long Island, Syosset, New York, who, who, who said those very words to me. If Jesus is the true Messiah, why didn't my people choose him? And I... I was 25, I gave the best answer I could. I talked about how, well, you know, um, they rebelled against Moses, didn't they? And they wanted to stone David at Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30, didn't they? And Elijah had to hide, didn't he? We're pretty sure that when Hebrews 11 talks about that some were sawn in two, that that's a reference to Isaiah, who was murdered under King Manasseh. So it's not like you have a sterling record of receiving God's messengers. If I had known any more, I would have gone on to say what I'm about to say. The Messiah is predicted. And part of the prophecies are that he would be rejected. Many of you will be familiar with Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53 is one of the most graphic descriptions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And it is a description of the Messiah rejected. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We hid him. We killed him. That's what Isaiah 53 says. We pierced him, it says. 800 years before crucifixion was introduced into the world as a form of execution. Alfred Edersheim, the rabbinical student who became a great scholar and taught at Oxford, 
who became a Christian in Budapest in the 1840s. He called Isaiah 53 the bad conscience of the synagogue. Why? Because in ancient times, Isaiah 53 was always read in the synagogues on the high holy days. Now it's never read. You know why? Because it's obviously about Jesus of Nazareth. And they can't bear to read it. So we have this stupendous tragedy that Jesus talks about at the end of his high priestly prayer, John 17, 25. The world hasn't believed me. The world hasn't received me. Even my own people would not receive me. This consummate tragedy. And yet, it wasn't a surprise. It was predicted all along. We see after the great tragedy, the great possibility, verse 12, but to as many as did receive him, receive him. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Now I say a possibility. I know that this is a reformed congregation. I know that it's your doctrine that these things are settled before the foundation of the world. That's my doctrine too, but we're talking about the human perspective now. We're talking about the pleas we make as evangelists and as missionaries. We're not talking about God's decrees before time began. We're talking about trusting Jesus in time. And we know that there are some who will receive him. There are some who will believe in him. And to those, he will give the right to actually become God's children. I have to say that some of the Christians I admire most are the Christians who've done things I've never had the guts to do. I'm a missionary. That's the little contribution I make. There are greater contributions. There are more courageous things I've never had the guts to attempt. One of them is adoption. 1993, Jane and I visited a a Russian orphanage. I, for the second time, there was a young boy there, 12 years old, that I became uh, intrigued with, that I developed a little relationship with. We tipped right to the edge and we shrank back. And I so admire, as a little girl that I have just looked on with wonder since youth, tremendous athlete, tremendous scholar, a musician, now a young mother, a member of this congregation, she hugged my neck last week. Boy, what wise, fortunate, blessed adoptive parents to get her. Some of you are adopted. Some of you are, have, have adopted. And the reason it's so heroic is because there's no exit strategy. I've been, to, I've been to Iraq 17 times. I've also gotten out of Iraq 17 times. I had an exit strategy. I was too scared to stay. There's some missionaries who go there and stay there, not me. There's no exit strategy if you adopt a child. And I, I was wandering around my usual state of disorientation and I, last week, and I realized I was going the wrong way on the street, so I just pulled in a church parking lot to turn around. And then I started reading the signs and I got interested. Baptist Church in East Memphis on Quince. And I, I, uh, I got out my, my iPhone and I went to the website and I saw the picture of the heroic pastor there holding those four kids, two Caucasian and two of African extraction. And I thought, what a hero. I want, I want to take him to lunch. And you see... 
we can adopt a child and we can give them our name. We can give them our nurture. We can give them our estate. But we can't give them our nature. We can't make them look like us. Not that any child would want to look like me, but if we wanted to, we couldn't do it. Last week, we talked about the difference between human generation and divine generation. So I want to mention now the difference between human adoption and divine adoption. You see, Christian, God can give us his nature. What an overwhelming thing that wretches like ourselves could be made to look like Jesus. That through eternity, we would shine and bear the family resemblance of our Father. He came to his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become his children by adoption, even to those who believe on his name. Glory. Hallelujah. Verse 14, the great Christmas verse of John's gospel. We have the grand miracle. Um, Some of you read C.S. Lewis. Some of you don't. Maybe some of you don't because you find him difficult. He's not thoroughly orthodox. He's wrong about 25% of the time, 20% of the time. You got to know, though, that... (laughs) On that 75% or 80% he's right about, he can explain that more winsomely and more convincingly than the people who agree with us 99% or 100% of the time. That's why he's so valuable. And give yourself time. I, I read his book, The Abolition of Man, when I was 24 years old. I hardly understood a word of it. I went back to it when I was 32, and it, was, it became very accessible. I tried to read Surprised by Joy in my early 20s. I didn't like it. I read it, but I didn't like it. For some reason, I went back to it. I've read it eight times because I love it. So give yourself time to develop as as a reader. And if you've not read Miracles, go to the chapter on the Incarnation. The name of the chapter is called The Grand Miracle. It's Lewis's essay on what John talks about in verse 14. The logos, the governing principle which made everything is not just a principle and not just a which, but it's a person. He is a person, not it. He is a person. He is a who. And the God who made everything in verses one through five is the God who enters the world as a real human being in verse 14. The word became flesh. God became man. The theological formula runs something like this. Undiminished deity, very God of very God, the fullness of God, united with unfallen humanity, a human being, not a human creature, but a human being who could never sin, in one person forever. And I say forever because Christ becoming man is irrevocable. 
Paul writes, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't throw his humanity overboard when he died on the cross. He didn't jettison his humanity when he was raised from the dead or when he ascended or when he sat down on the throne. It is a man who intercedes for you, Christian. The God-man to be sure. Undiminished deity to be sure. But also a man to be sure. A human who knows what it's like to feel the temptation of sin. And even though he never sinned, who knows what it's like to be suffused with guilt because he took our sin and guilt on the tree. What a glorious thing that the Logos would become flesh and dwell among us. The, the, the Greek says he pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us. Matthew Henry says it's something rude like a tent to show that he lived, didn't live high. He lived in a tent, not in a palace. A tent is temporary. His biological life would only last long enough for them to kill him. And then he would assume his resurrection life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This amazing miracle of God becoming man and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now introduced to John the Baptist. By the way, when you study the Gospel of John, remember the, the, Christianity is not a Western religion. It's a heavenly religion. The Bible is not a Western book. It doesn't adhere to Greek thought patterns. We in the West are very linear. I'm not linear, but most people in the West are. In that A, B, C, D conclusion application. John doesn't write like that. He, he writes like a drill. He will, he will hit a subject, and then he'll go down deeper, then he'll return to the subject. Then he'll go down deeper, and then he'll return to the subject. Then he'll go down deeper, and he'll, he'll hit another subject, but he'll come back. So we see John, we're going to see him again. We're going to see him later in this chapter. We're going to see him in chapter 3. You're thinking he's leaving a subject, but, but he'll come back to the subject. And here we have a quote from John, and I'll just look at a little bit of it. It says, he existed before me, verse 15. Now, John was born before Jesus. And one reason John shares, John the writer shares the quote of John the Baptist at that point is he wants us to understand that the Logos, we've already learned that he's eternal. He didn't begin his existence when he became a man. He became a man. He didn't just uh, begin his existence in Bethlehem, or if you prefer in the womb of his virgin Mary, conceived in Nazareth. No, 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 no. He's always existed. And John the Baptist recognized that, that even though by biological years, his cousin was younger, as God the second person, he was eternal. Someone who had always existed. From his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace, I want to talk about that out of sequence at the very end. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, Christ fulfilled the law. And Christ took upon his royal person the punishment of God's wrath because we didn't obey the law. The truth is... We are sinners worthy of condemnation. That's the truth that Jesus proved by going to the cross. We are also beneficiaries of grace. 
Jesus proved God's grace by dying for us. You see the two sides of the same reality. We're going to talk about this more next week when we talk about Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd like just to share with you a quote from Jonathan Edwards right now. These ideas of law and grace, this idea of the wrath that we deserve and the grace that we have been given. Can we put the quote by Jonathan Edwards up on the screen? Um, These are apparently contradictory realities. Will God have to spend his wrath on us? Or will he have to provide his grace for us? He doesn't give us grace with no reference to wrath. He can only give us grace because Christ died for us. Because the wrath of the Father was deposited upon the person of his Son. Again, we're going to talk about that more next week. So, here here are two opposite things that ought to look unmatched and incompatible when they come together. But in Christ, they are what Jonathan Edwards calls admirable. The admirable conjunction. This, this sentence is not so easy to figure out. Jonathan Edwards was a very deep philosophical thinker. That's one reason we put it up here for us to stare at for a few minutes. The admirable conjunction. That means the joining, which is we, we admire because it's beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had a look at the iconography of Hinduism. And if you have a Hindu background, if you're still a Hindu, I'd, as we have Hindus in our community and we want to respect them, I don't mean to be insulting, but I think even they would admit that the idols they depict are grotesque. One of the most famous is the head of an elephant with the chest and legs and arms of a man. And you see this, this collision of opposite and diverse images which they cobble together in their religion, in the way they depict their deities. And Chesterton said when you look at these idols, they're hideous enough to crack the face of the sky in Chesterton's metaphor. But when we look at God's righteous law in visiting wrath and God's abundant mercy in offering grace, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we're struck by the beauty. It's, an admir- it's a thing that makes us admire, not turn our face away. There's an admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies, the different kinds of excellence. God's righteousness and wrath is one feature of his holiness. God's holiness is admirable. God's mercy, well, we have to admit it, is even more admirable because we're so attracted to it. We wish he would forget about that wrath. He can't because he's holy. But we're so glad that he is also a God of great mercy and a God of great grace. The admirable joining together of otherwise incompatible excellencies which are manifest in Christ Jesus, said the greatest mind ever to preach in a North American pulpit, Jonathan Edwards. Now, amazingly, we'll spend the rest of our time on this. Verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God. No one has seen God at any time, other versions say. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What on earth could that mean? 
I mean, my goodness, Adam and Eve saw God. Moses saw God. Isaiah saw God, one of the most famous God sightings in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. You remember the famous here I am, send me passage of Isaiah 6? What can John possibly mean? I want to show you a painting that I stumbled upon 15 months ago in St. Petersburg. My wife knew about this artist. I'd never heard of the artist. I'd never heard of the painting. I was looking for uh, Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. And I was, going, I was going around a corner and on the left I saw this painting and I stopped and I was stunned and I started to tear up. I recognized the biblical scene immediately. Many of you will too. Genesis 18. This is Abraham entertaining the heavenly visitors. Now some of you are very familiar with this doctrine. Some of you are not. I can't prove the doctrine. I don't have time. I'm over time right now. Just take my word for it. If you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it later. One thing that amazed me about the painting was the biblical understanding of the painter who lived in the 17th century, Jan Victors. A minority of scholars think that Rembrandt himself painted it. Most scholars, a large majority, think it was a man called Jan Victors, who soon after he painted this, abandoned art, became a missionary, and died in the Duchess East Indies as a young man. Amazingly. Two of the heavenly visitors are angels. I don't think they had wings. I think that's a wrong depiction. But the artist is making it clear that was an angel. One of the three was God. One of the three was the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, how can John say no one has seen God at any time? But the only begotten from the Father, he has explained him. The Greek says he has exegeted him. And the preacher has to do two things. He has to exegete the text. That's when you get out of the text what's there. Then he has to expound the text, the exposition. That's when he gives out what he's gotten out. What John is saying is that Christ is exegeted. He's shown us what's in God. Let me paraphrase John 1.18, I hope faithfully. No one has seen God at any time, except, of course, when they saw Jesus. What does it mean? It means that the visible God of the Old Testament is God the second person. It means that the visible God of the New Testament is the same visible person as the visible God of the Old Testament. That God has not only shown himself in, in what he looks like through Christ in the New Testament, God also showed himself in what he looked like through the pre-incarnate, before he became a man, Christ in the Old Testament. You got it? 
one of your astute members reminded me of something that I always teach when I teach this, but I didn't teach it in the first service. And he brought it up and, and reminded me, and I'm grateful to him. I mentioned one of the most famous God sightings in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. In John 12, 41, in John 12, John quotes Isaiah 6. And in verse 41, speaking of Jesus, he says, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him, and John is talking about Christ. The one whom Isaiah saw in the year King Uzziah died, according to John 12, 41, was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. We need three years, not three Sundays, but we gotta stop. But I wanna talk about a verse that I skipped as we close. We have received, John writes, I don't know for sure if it's John the Baptist he's quoting or if he's supplying this editorially. I rather think it's John supplying the thought. In verse 14, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. One of the greatest prayers of the Old Testament is prayed by Moses, Exodus 33. He says to God, show me your glory. And God says, um, well, I'll show you something. I'm gonna hide you right there in that rock. But I'm not gonna show you my face. I'm not gonna show you the glory of my face, but I'll show you my backside, what Don Carson calls the trailing afterglow of God. And here's what John is saying. We beheld his glory. He's saying, we saw what Moses asked for. He gave us what Moses wanted. Moses asked for it, but we got it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 speaks of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. If you'll allow just a little aside, when you come to the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses is on the mountain He's looking at the face of Jesus. What does he see? He sees the glory of the sun. Where is Moses? Where's the Mount of Transfiguration? It's in the Holy Land. Did Moses get into the Holy Land? Yes, he did. Not before he died. Remember we told you last week, death is not the end, death is the beginning. Did Moses see the glory of God in the face of God? Yes, he did. Not before he died. You see, Christian, if you ask for a good thing, God, if it's a good thing, if it's a holy thing, God never tells you no. He may say not yet, but all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1. What does it mean that we have received of the fullness? Well, it means this. A child may take his bucket to the seashore and he will fill his bucket, but the, bu but the sea is not thereby diminished. 
is still full. A tree or a flower may absorb life from the sun, but the sun is not thereby diminished. The Puritans, whom modern scoffers refer to like they were yehus and ignorant, were towering scholars. They couldn't help writing in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin all the time. The Puritans used to say that the fullness of Christ is the plenitudinum, I can't even say, plenitudinum fontis, the fullness of a fountain, not the plenitudinum vasis. Plenitudinum vasis is the fullness of a vessel. If you take from a vessel, the quantity is diminished. If you take from a fountain, the quantity is still overflowing. Christ is the fullness, not of a vessel, but of a fountain. Let me tell you, we are offered something greater than the sun. We are offered someone who made the sun. We are offered someone who outshines the sun. We're, often, we're offered something greater than the ocean. We're offered the fountain of fountains, the Lord Jesus Christ, sinner. Why would you not take him? Why would you not take a savior? I quote Jonathan Edwards one more time. What is it that you wish to find in a savior that you cannot find in Christ? Tell me. Cry out to the Father. Father, I'm a sinner. I thank you for sending such a savior for sinners like me. I want the full benefit of his death. I want pardon. I want the full benefit of his blood. I want cleansing. I want the full benefit of his resurrection. I want to live a different life, his very life. Save me, dear God, for Christ's sake. I took Jesus as my savior, wretch that I am. You take him too. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so great salvation offered to the sons of men, offered to the daughters of men, offered to us on this day that we've heard the gospel from your word. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to be pierced for us, to expire for us, to be raised for us. Thank you for the explanatory power of the gospel. It tells us who we are, what we are for, why we are on this planet. Thank you for the transformative power of the gospel, which doesn't leave us where we are. It takes us to where we shall be, glorying in your presence forever forgiven forever changed as your adoring children. For Christ's sake, we thank you. Amen.